Sales win rates have plummeted to a mere 17%, and outdated technology and tedious manual processes are to blame. Meanwhile, managers lack the visibility they need to hold their teams accountable. But imagine a world in which these crippling issues are solved automatically. Revenue.io automates the most frustrating parts of sales so reps can focus on what they do best, selling. Completely automate pre-call research, logging conversation data in your CRM, writing post-conversation recap emails, and prioritized outreach. And as reps book more meetings and close more deals, managers gain the real-time insight they need to scale what's working across their entire team. Ready to say goodbye to tedious sales processes and watch your win rate soar? Head over to Revenue.io to learn more. It's time to accelerate. Hey friends, this is Andy. Welcome to episode 540 of Accelerate, the sales podcast of record, where I hold in-depth conversations with today's leading experts in sales, marketing, and leadership six days a week. Joining me on the show today is John Rossman. John's the author of a couple of really interesting books, including The Amazon Way on IoT, The Internet of Things, 10 Principles for Every Leader from the World's Leading Internet of Things Strategies. And the second one, The Amazon Way, 14 Leadership Principles Behind the World's Most Disruptive Company. And today, John and I are going to talk about the importance of principles in sales as opposed to just methods and process. And specifically, we're going to talk about some of the principles that Amazon has used to build such an incredibly diverse company and one that's just passionately committed to supporting their customers. We'll talk about how you can apply some of these same principles to grow your sales and to grow your company. If you'd like to see the show notes for this episode... Go to andypaul.com forward slash 540, episode 540. There you'll find a timestamp breakdown of this and all conversations on Accelerate. Make sure you check that out. And if you like Accelerate, which I'm sure you do, it really helps us out if you subscribed, left, left us a review. Uh, love to get uh, feedback from you about what we can do to make this a more valuable investment of your time. So let's dive right into it. John Rossman, welcome to Accelerate. Andy, thank you for having me. Hey, my pleasure. So... I lead off my interviews with a standard question. It's almost sort of like my little research project here. And it's, it's, um, I did one before. I have actually have re- re- released a report actually with 300 answers about sort of how to initiate a sales turnaround from guests on my show. So this one is uh, now the question is what's in your mind? What's the single biggest challenge that sales professionals face today? Well, I think um, more and more, I think buyer sophistication is, has increased and, Buyers are well aware that, you know, especially technology solutions, like there's so much that goes around beyond the technology to make successful uh, implementation. And so I think it's it's really being able to understand not just kind of your product or your tool and the and the speeds and feeds and the features of it and, and all of that, but it's really setting the both the case and the right environment so that implementation can be successful. And so I think it's it's more sophisticated and you have to understand things well beyond kind of whatever the thing is that you you happen to be representing. So making sure that you as a sales professional how are developing your broader business acumen in order to engage in the right level of conversation with your your buyer? That, that, that's right, and help, and especially if your your product or service has 
a complex implementation to it. It's about prepping your implementation partner to be successful in their work, helping your client be ready for that implementation and really setting the basis for you know, adoption, right? Because all of these things are about adoption. So it's not even implementation isn't even the objective. The The objective is impact and adoption and use and changing that business case. Change management. Change, change management, exactly. And I think that there's so much that can be done from the very onset um, about you know, defining what that is, keeping it as simple as possible, staying focused on the the, the things that really matter. How, um, I think the the notion of being agile and the minimally viable product has a role in how do we successfully implement things so that they don't become big monolithic implementations. All of those things, you know, Sales professionals, in my mind, really aren't sales professionals. They're about they're they're just a, a one aspect of being a problem solver for your client, and that problem solving doesn't stop when the when the contract is signed. Yeah, well, it's sort of interesting because <clears throat> you know, in certain segments of of the sales industry, sales professions such as Will, is there's still this heavy reliance on sort of positioning people as closers. And it's funny, there's sort of this, this uh, second wave coming now of people talking about the importance of sellers being customer-centric in a way that, you know, addresses many of the boxes you talked about in terms of, of you know, the change management issue, the transformation issues, you know, understanding things from the buyer's perspective. And yet that's, that's not really new, right? I mean, we can go back to Michael Bosworth and books published, you know, two decades ago that really started talking about this, but it seems like it's, it's hard to take hold and stay. It seems like we sort yeah. of go through these waves. I mean, I'd interesting what your take is on that. Well, um, I don't know if I know the full answer to that, but, but I think one thing that's adding to the, to the fuel of this kind of challenge is that as more and more solutions become on demand and subscription based, Mm-hmm. That you know, clients truly do, and and they become um, you know like Amazon Web Services, where you can scale up and scale down, and and all of that. You really do have more skin in the game as an account developer to make sure that adoption is taking hold. And so I think that that the evolution of how technology and data solutions um, are deployed also plays a role in in putting more and more emphasis on achieving the business outcomes, not just getting to a contract. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And we'll, we'll talk about that here coming up. So as sort of a preface, you've you've written a series of books on sort of generally titled The Amazon Way on a variety of different topics. So, <clears throat> excuse me, tell me what you meant by The Amazon Way, what inspired it, and uh, how you got there. Sure. So um, I'm a partner at a consulting firm now called Alvarez and Marcel. I have been for 12 years. Prior to AM, I was uh, a senior leader at Amazon. I got to run two businesses. I launched and scaled the marketplace business, and then I ran the enterprise services business where we ran other large retailers' e commerce infrastructure. So I had responsibility for Target and Toys R Us and a number of other great brands. And as I transitioned out of Amazon and into my consulting client work, I just saw the impact that the anecdotes, the strategies, the mindsets 
um, had in helping my clients successfully make change. Right? The, mind, the mindsets from Amazon and so on. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And I had one client in particular at the Gates Foundation who, who uh, actually he ran Bill Gates' two book projects for him. And he was, he was a friend of mine and a neighbor and a client. And he was like, you know, John, you do a really nice job of taking these little stories and putting them into play just at the right moment. You really should think about writing a book. So I, I talked Greg into helping me do those books. And so the first book is about the 14 leadership principles of Amazon. And they, they these are these are the strategies and the mindsets and the beliefs of the leaders at Amazon. And the most important thing about those principles is they're not about being a poster on the wall. These are principles that are put into everyday meetings to help drive good decision-making and similar priorities and a similar point of view. And then the second book I wrote was on the Internet of Things, and um, it's called The Amazon Way on IoT. And my sole goal with that book was to help a business leader be able to answer the question, what should my Internet of Things strategy be? And so I kind of walk through the questions you can ask, the principles or the, the types of strategies that IoT can have in a, in a business and help the reader go through an, an exploration of their own situation so that they can build their own strategy and perspective on how connected devices can impact their business. And Amazon just happened to be like the best exemplar of all of those principles. So I just kind of leveraged the brand and called it the Amazon way on IoT. Yeah, well, very, very clever marketing. Um, but also, you know, great content to the book because I'm a huge fan of Jeff, Jeff Bezos and have quoted him in my own books. And one of the things I thought was really interesting is, is the books based on the idea of principles. And there's at the at the beginning of your book on the Amazon Way on IoT, you've got a great quote from a gentleman in Harrington Emerson, who is a business theorist. And I wanted to read it because I thought it applies and really resonated with me because the way it applies to so many parts of our business, but sales in particular for people who are listening to this. And, and the quote is, um, again, from Harrington Emerson, as to methods, there may be a million and then some, but principles are few. The man who grasps principles can successfully select his own methods. The man who tries methods ignoring principles is sure to have trouble. And uh, well, I'll get into why I thought that was so important. But I wanted to ask ask you, John, why that quote resonate with you so much? Um, because I wanted to write something that was more durable than like today's news or the technologies of today's, and because I knew it, it's in essence an applied strategy book. And this essence of principles, I thought, was very, very important. And I wanted to explain why I was writing these things and proposing them as principles because they have that durability that I, I believe will transcend, you know, momentary time and fads and the technology that that go about implementing them. Yeah, and I think for we have like I said, we have a sales audience, it's predominantly a sales audience. We have some entrepreneurs and and so on, but and marketing people. But but the thing I think that's so key and that struck with me that why this struck a chord with me is that we're obsessed in sales with methodologies and process. And as you talk about, and as Harrington talks about, is that, or Harrington Emerson talks about, is that methods are so situational. But if you have principles, and you refer to this in the book on leadership, you know, principles have a vision. As you mentioned, they're adaptable. I think one of the key things about principles is, as you talked about, 
early in the discussion here is, is there's a clarity they lend to an operation, to a company, to a team that that is really essential because if you're ever in doubt about what you should be doing, you know, your principles lend sort of an unambiguous clarity to it. And, and principles, um, you know, so many teams or companies, they have visions or missions, which I think are really important, but they, they tend to lack kind of a tactical application capability to them, right? right? They're tough. They're tough to insert into every meeting and, and, and rules, you like, you can always bypass rules or find the faults in rules, whereas principles fit that middle ground of like, they're tactical enough to be able to use, but they're also broad. And when used in good spirit, like they're, t- they're tough to trick, they're tough to fool, you know, and everything. Right. And so, yeah. pr- you know, principles, I, I just find is a, as a, as a great way at keeping things at the right level, making them simple, making them memorable, making them usable. And then you can adapt, you know, as you're saying into kind of any, any circumstance and stuff. And if you can get people to buy into the principles, then you have a lot less debate on, on the tactics that in the change that you're proposing to, to, uh, to pursue. Yeah, no, I, I agree 100%. And I, I think that's, again, one of the issues we see so much in sales is we have these methods uninformed by principles. And what we see is they fade in effectiveness pretty quickly because, you know, there's no durability to them. And, you know, if you're thinking of this in sales and you've got your sales process and you don't understand what your principles are as an organization or the principles that you're trying to uh you know, events and, and just how you sell. Yeah, it's, it's going to be problematic for you in the long run. That's right. All right. So I sort of leading from that, then with the principles is I want to talk some here about Amazon's obsession with the customer. Uh, I think it's, it's one of the hallmarks of Amazon, but I think it also offers a lot of lessons to people, you know, with audience here. It's primarily made up of B2B, B2B sale sellers, excuse me. Um, and I, I use a quote from Jeff Bezos in my second book, Amp Up Your Sales, that to my mind is, is the best quote about sales that sort of encapsulates what selling is better than anything else I'd ever seen. And it was from an rev- interview I read that he had given in the Harvard Business Review. This is about, I don't know, three or so years ago. And his quote was, you know, uh, make sure I get it right, was, you know, we don't make money when we sell things. We make money when we help the customer make a purchase decision. And I just thought, whoa. I mean, that that sums it up so quickly because, you know, it's all about helping the customer. If, if we as sellers don't have helping the customer in the forefront of our mind for everything we do, then, you know, we're never going to perform the way we could. And there's a number of examples of where they've taken that obsess over the customer, which is the first leadership principle at Amazon, and it's probably the the kingpin, the first among equal, um, where they've taken that and they've they've driven that to specific capabilities and approaches and features, and and I'll talk about just one. Sure. Um, and it's and it's a feature that was launched. 12, 13 years ago called Search Inside the Book, right? And so it lets a user um, see a select number of pages within a book and also to search specific quotes. When Amazon was proposing that, the publishing community was in an uproar. Yeah, I'm sure they hated it. 
they they hated it. The, the transparency, like, well, what if the user, you know, the customer doesn't 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 like it? What if the customer prints pages from the book, and so they don't end up buying the book? But the fundamental belief that we were able to convince publishers of was that if it's good for the customer and it establishes trust with the customer, over time they will purchase more books. Now, it puts the onus back on publishers and, and writers to actually create great content. And so there will be more transparency from that. But if, if customers trust that what they're buying will actually meet their, their needs, satisfy them, the logic is they will buy more. And so we, we were able to convince publishers to, to let us go forward with that. Um, and, and so Search Inside the Book is a perfect manifestation of where that maniacal obsession about improving the customer experience and establishing trust with the customer and doing moves that are counter-traditional, counterintuitive, are lapooned and made fun of, and the industries doesn't get where that where it benefits the customer, typically those things will win over time. Yeah, and I love the the sort of phrase that you're used in the book, and I presume it comes from Bezos as well, is you say leaders start with the customer and work backwards. So what what did he mean by that? Well, um, first is you want to have you want to build true customer empathy. Like you actually need to understand, like, what are they going through? What are they trying to solve? What's important to them, both personally as, as well as from a business? And it also in, entails understanding um, your customer broader than exactly where your product or service um inserts, right? And so it's, you know, look upstream, look downstream and understand them and design things that are designed not because of your organization structure or, you know, what you want to do, but truly um, build things from the customer uh, backwards and that that's the best way to both build product as well as to manage your business is, you know, from the customer's perspective. Yeah. And I, that, <laughs> there's lots of, lots of, yeah, I'm thinking of all these examples of of ways that you sort of become obsessed with the customer. And you know, I have an example I've talked about in one of my books, and I've talked about I think here on the air before. Is is there's a restaurateur here in New York named Danny Meyer that has a series of very very successful restaurants. He also started the whole Shake Shack chain, and um, but you know he is obsessed with the customer. It's the culture he he's built in his organizations and his restaurants, and I. I always compare and contrast. I was at a restaurant once in the San Diego area and with a family and one of uh, my kids had had a had ordered steak and had a fairly large piece of the steak left. And so I asked if they could box it up and take it home and we got ready to leave. They said, oh, oh, we forgot. We, we accidentally got rid of that. And, you know, a $40 steak, that was, that's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of cost. Right. And, the restaurant was sort of absolutely unwilling to do anything about it, right? It was like, oh, well, can we buy you a glass of wine? Well, we don't want a glass of wine. We, this was a meal somebody was going to have tomorrow. And then I compare that with my wife and I were at a Danny Meyer restaurant uh, in Gramercy Tavern in New York City. And similar thing, my wife had, had uh, eaten about half her meal and she asked her to be boxed up and take it home. They said, absolutely. And and just as we're getting ready to leave, the waiter comes over and says, I'm so sorry, we, we uh, accidentally threw your meal away. Can you wait another 10 minutes because we're firing up a whole new entree for you to take home? Now, 
<laughs> the difference between those two, I mean, I've never been to that other restaurant again. I used to go to it all the time, the one in San Diego. We've never been to again. But, you know, we'll go off our way to go to a Danny Meyer restaurant because they're obsessed with pleasing the customer and the customer experience. Yeah, like so many things, there's both kind of a spirit and an empowerment to it. But then there's also like an operational um, manifestation uh, for it. And um, one of the types of work that I do with a lot of my clients is they may have the spirit of, of good customer obsession or they need to build it more and they're looking for ways to do it. Most companies don't have metrics that actually measure the customer experience. And so I work with my clients on defining from, from the very top all the way down to very granular metrics, like what are things that you can actually measure about your customer experience and then drive a culture of continuous improvement to improve those. So at Amazon, we had a metric called the pop metric, which was the perfect order percentage, right? It, it was a, an aggregate metric. It, it meant that the right item got shipped to the right customer, um, was delivered on time with no issues and no contacts about the order, right? It was a mm-hmm. perfect shipment. And then th- that metric was broken down to five metrics and each of those metrics is broken down, right? And so you can actually um, re-engineer the customer experience and, and put metrics in place where you never thought you could have metrics in place to evaluate the customer experience in, in, a, in a more operational manner to actually build that type of customer obsession and to drive for perfection in the business. So do you have an example of more of a business-to-business? Yeah, I've, 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 I've worked with a big infrastructure, te- technology infrastructure uh, mm-hmm. client of mine. And um, in their sales and delivery side to the business, right. they have operational metrics and they have you know, month over month financial metrics, but they, they could not in any way with data answer the question, did my clients have a good day today? And so we implemented and designed a a set of metrics that are all about like, you know, did we get the, did we get the purchase order correct? Did, you know, did we, did we hit our, our timelines on, you know, the contract negotiation? These were complex products. Did we ship the right products? Were they received on time? Did they implement successfully? Did we have guarantee and warranty um, issues? Metrics around all of those things. And then we built a process where cross-functional teams, hopefully ignoring organizational turf, would get together and work like and ask what we call the five whys, like why did these things happen? And so you, you're driving to the root cause issue so that hopefully you're, you're improving the process over time through that. And so that's an example in a B2B sales and implementation scenario of building metrics that, that match the customer experience and using those to actually drive change in the organization. Did you? I'm curious. Did you have any metrics that talked about the customer experience in the pre-sale stage? It, it, the, the, by far, the toughest, the toughest part. One of the things we found was, you know, a lack of of good adoption and definition as to well, what should the pre-sales experience be? And so that's where a lot of the opportunity was in just helping to define that, and then using the tools and creating some fairly easy kind of mobile hacks so that they could capture that data, uh, that data better, right? Just things like, you know, the number 
of, of clarifications or edits or changes needed in proposals, those types of things at the end of the day start measuring the customer experience. But at the end of the day, especially with sophisticated technology solutions, it's about feeling like you have a partner that, you know, I can trust to help me get to that end goal versus, you know, change order me to death, right? And so a lot of what we what we measured was the quality of of the work that was proposed versus at the end of the day what was needed to actually hit success. And when there's a big variance, that means we're not doing a good job in our pre-sales process. No, I like that. No, that's that's a that's a really good one. Even even though lots of times from a from a traditional basis, hey, getting the the PO signed is the absolute goal. It's okay if we have to change order them later on, you know, and everything, right? Like, but that's that's yesterday's mentality, and that is what drives customers to not trust um, their solution providers. Is exactly the history around kind of change ordering. Oh yeah, what's what causes them to churn? Right. I mean, I think one of the biggest one of the biggest, fac- biggest factors, if not the biggest factor in churn, has to do exactly with that. You know, change orders in process and so on, which just speaks to, as you said, pre-sale, lousy job in discovery, lousy job in confirming needs with with the customer, validating and so on. That's right. Um, so another line I thought was really <laughs> interesting from Bezos from the the book and. And this one resonates, I know, with a lot of people, especially people that that uh, maybe travel a lot. Is you know, you talked to you quoted him saying he couldn't imagine a world where a customer would want higher price, slower delivery, smaller selection. And you know, the first thing I thought about when I was reading that was, well, how do the airlines get away with it? But there are industries that that sort of almost think that way. Yeah, the real essence of that discussion, and that was specifically a, cl- a client meeting that uh, that we were on and everything, was figure out like what your durable strategies are in your business. And it just so happened that in Amazon's case, just firm belief was I couldn't, I I can't imagine a world where customers want fewer selection, higher prices and slower delivery. And those were the durable strategies that Amazon was pursuing. And so the message to to the client that we were working with is like, what's your durable strategy to your clients? They're, they're likely not the same things that Amazon uh, was preaching. And, and that's what I really took from it was like, what are your real, what's your brand? What's your brand promise? What are the durable assets in your business? And make sure that you understand those golden assets and that you're building them over time. So, you know, it, it's kind of ridiculous, but one of the real golden assets at Amazon is the item catalog, right? Like mm-hmm. that is the essence of selection at Amazon. And we put an unbelievable amount of effort and and horsepower and expense when we really needed to cut expense in the business to building a world-class catalog service. Sure. Because because Jeff believed that was one of the golden assets of the company for a long period of time. Right, but I was I was my my comment about airlines. You know, think about you can imagine a world where airline executives are sitting in a room and saying, yeah. "Look, we're going to have skinnier seats, less leg room. Uh, we're going to remove bathrooms and and so on," which which is what they do, right? And it's like, okay. How how do they how do they get away with it? They are nominally in competitive businesses, but it's it's like it seems like a reverse incentive almost for them. 
Yeah, uh, the airline business is a complex business. I do think that there is a big opportunity for, for airlines to differentiate, to really A, say, what is my brand? What does my brand stand for? And then B, to, di- to keep their service true to whatever their brand promise is. Sometimes it's on time. Sometimes it's low price. Sometimes it's convenient. Sometimes it's comfort and great food. But you can't be all of those likely, right? And and I think that that so many companies, they, they try to be everything and they don't shoot for that clarity and commitment on this is what our brand is and here's how it's going to manifest itself to a, to our customers. And so last question for you as, as we sort of get into this end game here is, is oftentimes I work with a lot of companies where you'll see a customer obsession sort of at the middle level, sometimes even at the sales rep level, but it's not necessarily always mirrored at the top and yeah, you know, obviously it, it's not sustainable in that case because you know the the CEO can sort of you know on whim you know change what people are doing. But how do how do the you know individual contributors, how do the middle management, how do they contribute to this idea of the customer obsession? Well, I, I would I would go back to a few of the basics, which is a metrics, metrics, metrics. Like that, that the, there was this the entire operational cycle at Amazon is a set of cascading operational metric reviews where you are reviewing metrics, a lot of which represent the customer experience, and you are explaining variation and you're shooting for perfection. And so that's one essence. And regardless of kind of role and level in the company, that's just the tone and tempo from a company like Amazon. And there's other companies that have that same uh, tone and tempo. And then I think the other thing that, and, and Bezos writes about this in the in the latest um, annual report, which I think is some of the best business writing uh, that's out there. And, he, and he's, he talks about being careful about managing by proxy. And what he means by that is, is surveys and what the press is saying about you. And to some degree, even sales um, information, like those are proxies for things. Make sure you are also out there actually experiencing what the customer is experiencing. So as much as possible, you know, dog food stuff, right? Like eat your own stuff, right? right. Go out there and meet with customers. Go out there and 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 when and understand like what is the worst day my customer has and what is the worst day my customer has relative to my product and service. Not the best day. So many things get staged for for you know review like you want to see when it's really ugly that's where insights are going to come from so i would just um say regardless of level like be careful of the proxies that are put in place you don't get better by you know always looking at the happy story (laughs) well i think that's so so true i mean just last comment on this is that we see this big trend in in certainly in business to business sales towards inside sales you know fewer people in the field but I keep talking to clients about this is one thing you're missing. You do have to get out and actually talk to a customer, right? It's just not just enough just to to do it remotely over a phone call or video calls. You actually need to go see what's happening in their business. And, and if you want to talk about like building true customer empathy, not just the transaction, like that is exactly what you have to do. And 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 the the thing that I've learned as I sell complex change is. It's not just about how does the business decision get made, but you have to understand personal motivations and personal pressures that are involved also. And you can only really get a good essence of that when you have a relationship. Yeah, and you have time with them. Right. 
And I think a lot of that, especially on, I think on the relationship over years of selling large complex things as well, is that more often than not, those need to be, you know, quiet moments to people alone, not just on the phone. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. John, excellent to talk with you. So how can people find out more about you and connect with you? Yeah, so um, at my blog, johnrossman.com slash accelerate, um, I've got a couple of treats for you. First, I've got a poster that is a visualization of the 14 leadership principles of Amazon free for you to download. And I also have a chapter from each one of my books that gives you a good flavor for, you know, the applicability and, and readability of the books. Excellent. Well, good. Well, John? Pleasure to talk with you. And uh, friends, thank you for spending this time with me today. Remember, come back again. Join us tomorrow for another great episode of Accelerate. So thanks for joining me. And until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. sales strategists. At Revenue.io, we're not just imagining the future of sales, we're building it. We offer the world's most complete platform for revenue teams, and we're featured in the most recent Forrester Waves for both sales engagement and conversation intelligence. With Revenue.io, you can slash call prep time to seconds, guide your reps in real time to have more successful conversations, and after calls, we generate ready-to-send recap emails so sellers can keep deals soaring toward the finish line at light speed. See the future of sales now at Revenue.io.